0: Primarily in um, two passages of Scripture this morning. So we'll be looking at um, Acts chapter six, verses one through six, and then we'll also be looking at First Timothy chapter three this morning as we continue this series on what is a healthy church. What is a healthy church? And um, so this morning we're going to look at. Um, Deacons. We look at deacons this morning and see, you know, what it, what what role do deacons play in a healthy church? It just so happens to coincide with our deacon ordination. The Lord seems to work things out like that for us. And so, um, later this evening, we will have our our deacon ordination as well. Several years ago, a a group of evangelical pastors was given uh, this question: What are the greatest errors? in the 20th century and the famous Christian statistician George Barna had posed his question and said that after I have spent the last two decades researching all facets of American life using nationwide surveys I've studied people's values, their beliefs, their lifestyles, their attitudes their opinions, their relationships their aspirations and demographics I have examined the expectations the goals, the strategies, the strengths, the weaknesses of businesses ranging from Fortune 500 Corporations to one-man consulting enterprises. I've devoted thousands of hours to get inside the world of Christian churches and parachurch ministries, exploring the belief systems, training practices, educational procedures, worship experiences, fundraising adventures, community-building endeavors, organizational structures, and staff procedures of those entities. And now, after 20 years of diligent digging into the world around me, I have reached a conclusion regarding the future of the Christian church in America. Nothing is more important than qualified leadership. So, obviously, George Barna was taking a very long time to state the obvious. And probably the second greatest error in the church over the last 100 years is the failure to recognize and apply biblical qualities... For church leadership. Godly leadership. Makes the difference. In a local church. Now for whatever reason. There is an attitude of suspicion. When it comes to any kind of authority. In our society. And perhaps it has to do with the fact. That our national government was established in revolt against the claims and demands of parliament in london perhaps it has to do with the fact that for many americans the government that now works to ensure their equal opportunity was the same government that in the past worked to make sure they had no opportunity perhaps it has to do with a vision of human nobility in america and american optimism that that believes that people are so good that if we're left to ourselves We, the people, will be the best that we can be. Or perhaps the real reason for our bent against authority is actually a simple one. And that's just that we are selfish. Christianity has always recognized the need for authority in society, in the home, and also in the church. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. And so what are we going to look at is a congregational context of deacons. And then we'll look at the qualifications of a deacon to help us to be able to identify what a deacon is. And finally, we will see the responsibilities of a deacon. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And before we go any farther, and before we look at the scripture, I believe it's essential that we understand that scripture seems to make it very clear that there are two offices within a church and they are deacons and elders in both of those offices both deacons and elders are plural offices meaning that there should be more than one deacon and more than one elder we'll look at that this morning specifically in the role of deacons and then next week we will specifically look at the role of elders And what does that mean in an effort for us as a church to be not only a healthy church, but a church that stands on the word of God, which is vital. As you may recall, we are using a book by Mark Dever called The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And that's what we've been using to walk through this. Let's look this morning at Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 6 verses 1 through 7, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distributions the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And, that they said, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multipl- multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. If you recall, if you were here when we went through the book of Acts, we specifically looked at that passage of Scripture to, once again, talk about deacons. We're going to go a little more in depth this morning. May God take His Word and use it to penetrate our hearts and lives and be a standard by which we live. It is His holy and inerrant Word. The first thing I want us to see this morning is the congregational context of church leadership. Not just deacons, but the congregational context of church le- leadership. So the first thing we need to look at is the role of the members of the congregation. What is the role of members of a church? The Bible gives discussion of church leadership and it always assumes in that discussion a congregational Context. Now, this may be surprising to you, but the church has spent a great deal of time in controversy over whom it is that God has intended to have the final say in what is taught and done in the churches. Some have said the bishops. Bishops have the final say. Some have said um, it has to be one particular. Bishop. Others have said it should be the ministers or somebody representing the ministers. Others say it should be local pastors or someone who is a gifted leader that God raises up. Have you ever stopped and given thought on how decisions are made in the church or how they should be made? See, if we look at the New Testament, we can see how there's confusion. In fact, we don't really find a straightforward manual for church government it's not in there it's not like this is exactly what you have to do there's some things that are pretty clear but it's not there's not a straightforward manual there's no ideal church constitution in the bible however that doesn't mean that the bible does not have anything to say about how we are organizing the church one of the most important passages about the church life It's found in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. We've looked at this over the course of weeks. But it says, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two brothers along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, right? And then if he refuses to listen to them, what do you do? You tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Matthew 18. Notice who it is that we make our final appeal to in those situations. Who's the final word go to? It's not a bishop. It's not a pope. It's not a presbytery. It's not an assembly or a synod or a convention or a conference. It's not a pastor or a board of elders or the deacons or a church committee. It is very straightforwardly and simply the church. It is the assembly of individual believers known as the church. Now, in the passage of scripture I'm using for this message we read of an event in the life of the early church that is vital for this discussion. You see, there was a problem. Apparently, this problem was over the distribution of resources that the church had. And the problem was requiring a good amount of the apostles' time. That's what it said in the twelve uh, summoned the full number of the disciples and said it's not right that we should be give up preaching the word of god to serve tables therefore brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute fill full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word and what they said please the whole congregation then luke goes on he gives the names of the people chosen so One thing that makes it difficult when we use the New Testament as a guide for structure within the church is this presence of apostles in the churches. Because we don't have apostles. So how can we now, later, post-apostolic elders, pastors, and overseers assume the apostles' practice as a single guard our guide for our own practice. Can we do that? Can we define doctrine? Can we delineate error? Or can we recall the words of Christ as those who had been with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, who were taught by Jesus, who were introduced by Christ and commissioned by Christ to be the foundation of the church? So the answer to that question is no, right? Because we're not apostles. So, however, that does not mean that we should not follow the model that has been set forth for us. The problem is that we are faced with, when following the model of the apostles, is that in following it, present-day leaders ascribe too much authority to ourselves without deserving such authority. Here we are in the book of Acts, chapter 6. And we see these apostles handing over responsibility to the congregation. And it seems as if they recognize in the church assembly the same kind of ultimate authority under God that Jesus recognized in his statement, Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17. Now, if we want to know about the New Testament church life, we only have to read the letters of Paul. Right In his letter, we find in uh, this continuation of the teachings of Jesus Christ and of the practice of the apostles. In Paul's letters, we see that discipline and doctrine are held to be the responsibility of the congregation under God. And so, for example, if one were to ask about the responsibility of church discipline, we could look to 1 Corinthians 5, 4, and 5, where Paul writes... When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul gives instruction to the whole church, not just the leaders. He gives instruction that the whole church take action. Yes, he's upset with the whole church, not just the leaders. That they've not taken some sort of action, but instead they've been tolerant of sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, we see a glimpse of how this church responded to Paul's directive. Apparently the man who was in this heinous sin, which is presumably the same one that's referred to in 1 Corinthians, had repented. However, we can notice how Paul describes the decision the church had made. He said this, this punishment by the majority is enough 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 6 the word in the greek for majority presumes that would be a definite number of people and that the greater part of that set number of people would have made the decision i've heard some people say that they are that there are no church votes in the new testament and yet in this passage There seems to be some sort of vote because it talks about the majority. Paul knew that the congregation in Corinth was competent to discipline itself. Paul believed that the individual congregation had the final responsibility even for the teachings they heard. That's why in the book of Galatians, he greets them, gives a greeting, which is very customary of Paul to do. He gives a brief prayer for his readers, and then he says this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that's contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed, as we said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And throughout the entirety of Galatian. Paul tells the church that they are responsible for judging the correctness of the message that's being presented to them by other people. And Paul says that the message that they've been hearing is not really the gospel. Therefore, we must assume the responsibility of rejecting that message that's not the gospel and the responsibility of rejecting those who deliver the message that's not the gospel. It's cru- crucial for us to notice that in combating false the false gospel, Paul didn't write to the pastors. He didn't write to the elders. He didn't write to the presbytery or to the bishop or to the conference or to the convention or to the seminary. No, Paul wrote to the church. He wrote To the Christians who made up the church and who knew the power of the gospel in their own life. This is why we must be certain that the members of the church are born again. That Christ's spirit indeed dwells in Christ's body. The spirit guided the church but only as the church is composed of those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Paul appealed to these Galatian Christians and made it clear that not only were they competent to sit in judgment of a message that's presented as the gospel but God required them to do so so anytime someone showed up and presented something else and then said this is the gospel the congregation as a church would have to make a decision they had to duty to judge even those who claimed to be apostles. So Paul made this point even more apparent in 2 Timothy. He counsels young Timothy. who's the pastor at the church in Ephesus on how to deal with false teachers. As Paul described the coming tide of false teachers, he didn't just mention the teachers themselves. He in particular blamed those who, to suit their own desires, gathered around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear Paul says you're you're going to gather around teachers they're going to just say what you want them to say so you don't feel confronted in your sin so you don't feel like you got to do anything so you just feel like oh well that was a great message pat myself on the back I am the most awesome Christian on the face of this earth. I'm going to walk out of church feeling awesome today. I'm awesome. Everybody is awesome. Oh, sorry. So if you're in church where the gospel is not preached, you have a responsibility to make sure whether it's in the selecting of the teacher's or the paying of them in approving their teaching, or in complying or consenting to listen to false teaching repeatedly and happily, then you're culpable for that. The congregation that Paul envisioned here was culpable for the false teaching that they endured and sponsored. They were to be held as guilty as those who actually did the false teaching. Once again, we see that their final responsibility rests in the congregation. Let me ask you this. Have you, ever, have you ever sat through a sermon or listened to a sermon that was so bad, that was so not biblical, that you wanted to walk out of the message? Have you ever done that? You, maybe you've, you've sat there and you thought, man, this is, this is awful. Or maybe you heard it on TV and you thought, man, this is awful. Would you, be even, would you even be able to tell if a message wasn't biblical? Listen, if you sit and listen to someone present garbage as the Word of God, you will be held accountable for that. When you sit and listen to my teaching, you bear some responsibility for it. Every local church, no matter what it is, whether it's a Roman Catholic church or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or Episcopalian or a Baptist or a Christian or even one of them that's a, a Uh, something else they're congregational in nature they exist only as the people continue to participate in the congregational meeting or with their funds or with their feet they vote the leaders of the congregation must listen they don't have to agree but they have to listen the congregation will have their say it's really that simple However, we must understand that the congregation has a wonderful responsibility that should be recognized, it should be encouraged, and it should be cultivated. As a congregation, this church is responsible to see to it that you have sound teaching. That's your responsibility. You have a responsibility to make sure that God is honored above everything else in this building. That's your responsibility as a church to sit through a sermon, a worship service, a teaching, whatever it is. And to make sure that God is honored above everything that goes on in his church. That his word is rightly proclaimed, that his commands are obeyed, and that his character is reflected in the lives of its members. This is the responsibility of our church and every other local church around the world. <clears throat> Congregations must make decisions about discipline and about doctrine. And They do so together, just like the early disciples did. Does this mean that it's a democracy in some ways? Yeah, because the people are making the decisions. But in some ways it's not. Because the church recognizes that we are all fallen people, right? We're all sinners. We tend to, to err. And we recognize that God's word is without error. And so the members of a local church are democratic in a sense that they work together as a congregation to try to understand God's word. There is no such thing as inerrancy of a congregational vote. Nor is there such a thing as an errancy of a pastor. But with that said, I think it's important to understand that the pastor is ultimately working for God and not the people. That's who every pastor is working for. He's not working for you. you may not want to hear that you may not want to hear that I'm not working for you but I'm not I won't stand before God and answer for how I worked for you God won't call me up and be like oh Josh how'd you work for First Baptist Church did you do everything they commanded you to do did you really listen to them and do what they wanted nope he will ask me to answer for how I worked for him and I will be held responsible. So what I mean is that the congregation can certainly give insight and even instruction to the pastor about certain things. But the pastor must never confuse congregational input as divine guidance. Because they're not the same. As a pastor in a congregation, we should strive for unity and the bond of peace We should work together for what we believe is best for the church. We work together so long as our understanding of God's word uh, are in sync with each other for us to do so. Here's what I would say. Individuals should take an active part in the life of the church. This is not merely done by you attending, praying, and giving. Those, those, Those things should be done. But we need to actively, actively get to know one another. You should be praying for one another. How can you pray for one another if you don't know one another? You should be sharing with one another about what God is doing in your life. We should be sharing about our concerns and our issues and our problems and our desires and our wants and our struggles. We must realize that part of our obligation and privileges as a member of a church is getting to know other believers. That's your job in making, not only getting to know others, but then making yourself known to them. That means it requires some sort of vulnerability on your part. That means you've got to share things that maybe you don't necessarily want to share. We are to study God's Word together. We need to learn to think as a church about God's Word. We should be growing in grace and in the knowledge of God's Word and in the knowledge of our own heart, and the heart of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we must be aware that we become more aware of the opportunities that God is putting in front of our church. With that said, God does not want us to function as a committee of the whole. We need to trust that God indeed does give people gifts to serve as church leaders. This means that we should desire to see the right balance of authority and trust. So, many churches are faced with a serious spiritual deficiency. Because they either have untrustworthy leaders or members who are incapable of trusting. And as individual members in a congregation, we must be able to thank God for the leaders that he puts among us, to recognize those that are gifted that way, and to trust them. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul speaks of such leaders as God's gift to the church. We should cultivate a church culture where the leaders that God gives us are esteemed and honored, not untrusted and torn down. Because I chose to preach you Hebrews a while back for a reason. And at the end of Hebrews chapter 13, it sounds kind of strange to many people. I prayed then and I pray now that God will help us understand Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 and apply it to our hearts. When it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your soul, as those who have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Think of all the pastors you've sat under, whether in this church or another church. In about a month and a half, something like that, I'll be the second longest tenured pastor in the history of this church. just over six years think of all the pastors have you honestly worked in such a way that you made their leadership of you and their charge of your soul a joy have you acted in such a way that they couldn't wait to show up on Sunday morning and preach God's word because it was such a joy to care for your soul. Or have you made it a burden? Because listen, folks, Hebrews 13, 17 is abundantly clear. It's not your job to make it a burden. They should serve you with joy. They should look forward to it. We're not used to hearing these kinds of words today, right? The words obey and submit. We don't like those words. We don't hear them often, but they are a part of God's inerrant word. They require from us a certain amount of trust. And I have people say, well, trust is earned. I know what it means when there's something new, like a new boss or a new friendship or a new government. We want to see by experience how that person or people will weather the difficulties, how will they they persevere, and whether or not they will contribute to the well-being of everyone that's concerned. And so we say, well, trust is earned. Show me that you can do something, and then I will give you my trust by following you because trust is earned. And it sounds great, right? That sounds great. Trust is earned. You've probably said that. Trust is earned. In fact, oftentimes as pastors, you're told you've got to earn the trust of the people. So when you become a pastor of a church, you need to just kind of lay low for a few years and earn the trust of the people. Make sure that they trust. And it sounds great. But it's only half true at best. Of course, we want to see leaders in the church, just like anywhere else, capable of holding responsibilities. But Paul lays out the qualifications for elders and deacons, and he writes to Timothy and to Titus. However, here's what we have to understand. That trust that we are called to give to our fellow imperfect humans in this life whether you're they're your family or your friends or they're your employees or the government official or the church leader that trust can never be earned it can't be earned you know why because it's given as a gift it's a gift. It is a gift in the faith and and trust more of of, of who God is. That you trust, hey, God has given me this leader. So it's a trust in who God is. and, And therefore, you give the gift of trusting the leader that God has placed in your life. It's not about the leader. It's about trusting God for the leader he has given you. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 4, 11-13. So the congregational context of church, Leadership is to be a congregation that trusts God, that he's given you a gift of leaders. Now, let's see the biblical qualification of a deacon. See, I did did that first point, so I don't have to do that again next week. So I'm expecting you to remember that next week. Now let's see the biblical qualification of a deacon. What is a deacon? The word deacon, translated, literally means servant or table waiter. Which is exactly what deacons do. They are to serve the elders and the congregation by tending to the practical and logistical needs of the church. Put simply, a deacon is an individual who meets certain character requirements and is set apart by the church to handle specific physical needs, or ministerial endeavors. Nowhere in Scripture do we see deacons as leaders or overseers of the church. Nowhere. This is the role that God has given to elders, very specifically. Instead, deacons humbly serve the congregation by ensuring that practical matters within the congregation are met. In so doing they free the pastor and the elders from doing these tasks so that they can devote themselves to teaching to praying and to leading the church. Now as we look at the qualifications for a deacon we go to the only passage where those qualifications are mentioned. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 8 through Thirteen, Paul gives an official but not exhaustive list of qualifications. Now interestingly enough, the focus of these qualifications is the moral character of the person who is to fill the office of deacon. A deacon must be mature and above reproach. It's also interesting that Paul says likewise, which links it to the previous seven verses. Meaning that deacons should have the same standards in their spiritual life that the first seven verses lay out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The main difference between an elder and a deacon is a difference of gifts and calling, not a difference of character. So, let's look at these qualifications of a deacon. One, it says that he must be dignified first timothy chapter three deacons likewise must be dignified so to be a person i don't know what you picture when you picture dignified maybe somebody likes in a suit and they're all like rigid like a robot i don't know that's what some people might picture it's to be someone worthy of esteem or respect especially on account of their behavior Deacon must carry themselves with dignity and be respected both inside and outside the church. In other words, no one should be surprised to find out that this person is a deacon. If they say, I'm a deacon, no one should be, oh, wow, really? Okay, that's a bad sign that they lack some dignity. The deacon is to be committed to Christ and the mission of the church, dignify. Number two, it says, not double-tongued. That's double-talking. It is hypocritical or insincere speech on account of equivocation or duplicitousness. That's a big one. Duplicitousness. The deacon should not be saying one thing to a person's face and something else behind their back. In other words, the word of a deacon should be their bond. Deacons also must be careful about saying one thing but meaning something else. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there's a town of fair speech. Speech where there's a character named Mr. Two-Tongues. There's also Mr. Smooth Man, Mr. Facing Both Ways, and Mr. Anything. Deacons should not be like that. They should be people who are open and honest and sincere in all they do, say, and think. Many churches have been harmed by two-tongued deacons instead of true-to-Christ deacons. And we must be Careful not to be double tongued. Three, not addicted to much wine. Not addicted to much wine. Anytime you have too much to drink, you're going to be impaired. But notice, deacons are not forbidden from drinking. It doesn't say no drink whatsoever. Quite honestly, I've never really understood why Southern Baptist churches have said. You must abstain from drinking. I don't know why our seminaries say you have to abstain from drinking. That's an extra biblical requirement. It's nowhere found in Scripture. It's not there. They must not be addicted to strong drink. Clearly, God permits Christians to drink. Jesus turned water into wine. He did not turn it into grape juice. He's God. It would make absolutely no sense to turn it into grape juice. Oh, that would be so shocking. I mean, it would be. But the, the wedding feast says, you saved the best wine for last. Because everything he does is the best. He made the best wine. That's the whole point of the miracle. Jesus said, the Son of Man comes eating and drinking to the Pharisees, and you call him a wine-bibber and a glutton. So what was Jesus drinking? It wasn't water if they called him a wine-bibber. So let's not put extra biblical qualifications on things. The thought is not, hey, does this potential deacon drink alcohol? But how do they use it? The character of the man is the issue. Not some legalistic restriction. If given the choice, does he quench his soul with alcohol or does he quench his soul with Christ? A deacon is to live free of all addictions. If not, they lack self-control. Number four, not greedy for dishonest gain. If a person's a lover of money, he's not qualified to be a deacon. Especially since deacons often handle financial matters for the church. It would be a heinous sin for a deacon to use money that's collected to help others for their own personal advantage. By definition, a deacon is someone who serves, not someone who helps himself. You don't want to be invited to a deacon's home for dinner only to have them blindside you with their sales pitch of the latest pyramid scheme that they're in. Not that I'm against home-based businesses. But you shouldn't be blindsided, like, hey, come over for dinner. Now let me tell you about my business. We're going to see some qualifications now that are more spiritual, so not greedy for dishonest gain. And then it says, as we're reading, it tells us there that they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience in verse 9. They have to be sound in their faith in life. deacon's life must be consistent with Christian doctrine. Paul also indicates that a deacon must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. That phrase, mystery of faith, is simply one way Paul speaks of the gospel. Consequently, this statement refers to the need for deacons to hold firm to the true gospel without wavering. Yes, this qualification does not merely involve one's beliefs, for he must also hold these beliefs with a clear conscience. That is, that the behavior of a deacon must be consistent with their beliefs. That means that you look at the behavior of a deacon and you know that they're a believer by the way that they live their life. Number six, they must be blameless. Paul first says that a deacon must be tested and then let them serve if they prove themselves. In other words, a deacon should enter a time of testing where the church and others are watching this person. And after they've been proven, after they've proven themselves Then they are made a deacon, proving themselves how? Proving themselves by being blameless. Blameless is a general term referring to a person's overall character. And although Paul does not specify what type of testing is to take place, at a minimum, the candidate's personal background, their reputation, and theological position should at least be examined. When is it examined? During their time of testing. That's the whole point. Moreover, the congregation should not only examine their potential deacon's moral, spiritual, and doctrinal maturity, but should also consider the person's track record of service in the church. And so our church puts a deacon in deacon training. During this time, a deacon should be tested. What do you mean they should be tested? In other words, they should be, we, you, should be free to ask questions. That's why we announce in a business meeting, this deacon is a deacon in training. At that point, you should be free to ask that deacon any questions that you want to ask them pertaining the ministry of being a deacon. That's your job. And they are in training. This is what scripture clearly Teaches us. And then at the end of that training time, a decision is made of yes, this deacon is blameless, therefore, we are going to make them an official deacon, which is what we are doing tonight. Now you might say, Well, I didn't ever talk to Will. That's not my problem. It's yours. Now, moving on to some family qualifications. Number seven says godly wife. Now, I have to admit, when I first made this outline, I had to say godly wife for a reason. Mainly because I wasn't sure whether I wanted to tackle the subject that I am about to tackle. But I realized that I was being more concerned with man, what man believed and how man would respond than what I feel that Scripture clearly teaches. With that said, I believe that the verse can be interpreted as speaking speaking to a deacon's wife. And therefore, Paul says that she must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. However, I do not believe That the verse is speaking about a deacon's wife. But I believe that it is speaking about women deacons. And there are several reasons I hold to this view. First, because of the words their wives. Should not be translated their wives. It is not their wives in the original language. It is one word and it is women. Because that is the word in the Greek. Just women. It is speaking of deacons. And I believe that this would be deacon women. Or servant women. Secondly, verse 11 uses the word likewise. Just like verse 8 uses the word likewise. Because it is entering a new category. Just like verse 8 was entering a new category. Thirdly. It is strange to mention deacons' wives when nothing is ever said of elders' wives. Fourthly, the de- de- definite article, or a possessive, is a possessive. It does not precede women in the Greek, which is why um, it shouldn't be there in the first place. If it meant the wives of deacons, then the article would say that, but it doesn't say that. Most translations have inserted the article and put their wives in front of wives. It's not there in the original language. Fifthly, and most importantly, we know from other scripture that there were women who held this role. Mainly, Phoebe, who carried Paul's letters to the Philippian church, who Paul called a servant which is the feminine form of the word deacon. And Paul makes it apparent that she will have opportunity to serve the church in Rome while she's in Rome. And lastly, I know I said lastly on the last one, but I got one more lastly. Because a deacon is simply a servant. That's it. With specific character qualifications. And none of those qualifications are able to teach. None of them. Let's move on. You can get mad at me later. Husband of one wife. I believe that Paul now reverts back to speaking of deacons as man deacons. Husband of one wife. This may be interpreted over the years in many different ways. The standard has to do with marital fidelity. It does not mean that a bachelor is ineligible for the office of a deacon. But it does mean that a deacon is a one-woman man. That is the best interpretation of the phrase. It is referring to the faithfulness of a husband towards his wife. He must be a one-woman man meaning there must be no other women in his life to whom he relates to in an intimate way, either emotionally or physically. If he is married, he must be monogamous in his marriage. I personally do not hold to the view that this verse is forbidding someone that is divorced from being a deacon, as long as their divorce was on biblical grounds. The point being made is how can a deacon serve the people if he will not even serve his wife? Lastly, I know I just threw a monkey wrench into all y'all's theology and doctrine, but that's okay. Lastly, manage children and household well. This means that a deacon must be a good father as well as a husband. This means a deacon should discipline his children with love. It does not mean That a deacon is required to parent like you think they should parent. He must be the spiritual leader of his wife and his children. It doesn't mean that you get to sit back and go, well, if I was his parent, I would spank that child. Oh boy, I'd light him up. That's not your job. It's whether he's a godly parent or not. The reason for these high standards is that the church is the household of God. Therefore, one of the best ways to tell if a man is ready to be a deacon is to see how he conducts his own household. Is he devoted to his wife? Does he nurture his children? Does he care for his colleagues? Is the name of Jesus Christ exalted in his home and in the workplace? A man who cannot manage his own household well will bring disorder to the household of God. I'm going to close with one final point. It's more than just like just saying a sentence. Though. so It's going to be repeated tonight if you come back. So you get a double dose. The responsibilities of a deacon. What I found much in modern churches is the office of elder is ignored and the office of deacon is misunderstood. Based on the New Testament, the role of a deacon is mainly to be a servant. The church needs deacons to provide logistical, material support so the leaders can focus on the word of God and on prayer. The New Testament does not give a lot of information concerning their responsibility. The requirements we just looked at were character and family requirements however if we compare the requirements of deacons to that of elders we get a clue of their function many of the qualifications are the same and similar but there are noticeable differences the most is that a deacon does not have to be able to teach first timothy 3 2 they must hold to the faith but nowhere are they ever instructed to teach it this suggests that deacons don't have an official teaching role in the church it does not mean that they can't teach it just means that they don't have to teach also, when speaking of deacons, Paul admits a section where he compares the managing of one's household to taking care of God's church in 1 Timothy 3, five. The reason for this omission is most likely due to the fact that deacons are not given a ruling or leading position in the church because that function belongs to elders. And although Paul indicates that a person must be tested before he can hold the office of deacon... The requirement that he cannot be a new convert is not included. Paul notes that if an elder is a recent convert, he may become puffed up with conceit. One implication concerning this could be that those who hold the office of elder are more susceptible to pride because they possess leadership over the church. On the contrary, it's not as likely for a deacon who is a servant to fall into the same sin. Finally, the title overseer in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2, implies oversight over the spiritual well-being of the congregation, whereas the title deacon implies one who has a service-oriented ministry. Based on all this and the pattern established in Acts 6 with the apostles and the 7, it seems best to view deacons as servants who do whatever is necessary. Whatever is necessary. To allow the elders to accomplish their God-given calling of shepherding and teaching the church. Just as the apostles delegated administrative responsibilities to the seven, so the elders delegate delegate certain responsibilities to the deacons. Elders can focus their efforts elsewhere. As a result, each local church is free to define the tasks of deacons however they see fit. I'm going to give you ten statements in closing and we will be done. What is a deacon? Statement one. A deacon is a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A deacon is a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Statement two. A deacon is a qualified servant to the church of Jesus Christ. A believer and a qualified servant. What a deacon is not. I will use these exact statements tonight. What a deacon is not. Statement number three. A deacon is not a pastor or an elder. A deacon is not, statement number four, a deacon is not a deliberating body of men. It's nowhere in Scripture. Statement five, a deacon is not an honorary position that's bestowed upon someone simply because we like them and they are friendly. That's not a deacon. Statement number six, a deacon is not a perpetual office in the church for unfaithful men. In other words, if somebody proves to be unfaithful, they should be removed. Deacons are called to serve the church. Statement number seven Deacons serve the church by protecting the pastor's biblical priorities. Statement eight Deacons serve the church by pursuing ministries in the church statement nine serve the church by promoting unity in the church statement 10 serve the church by personalizing the gospel for the church of jesus christ i close with one simple question a question that many are too afraid to ask and that question is this what do people see What do people see in you? Because everything we just talked about should be said of every Christian. So, what do people see in you? So, what we just talked about, or is it something entirely different? You say, Pastor, how do I respond to this message? You respond by asking yourself that question. God, what do do people see in me? Would people be surprised if you were a deacon of a church based upon your attitude and how you act and things that you do? What do people see in you? Perhaps you're putting unbiblical qualifications on deacons. Maybe you need to repent today. I don't know. But here in a moment, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to give you a chance to respond to the word of God if you'd like to respond this morning. We stand down front. If you'd like to respond in any way, maybe God has spoken to you in some way, shape, or form. I want to give you that opportunity. Let's close with prayer. Father.